So let me be honest, I love every guest who joins me on this show, but sometimes you have like a super favorite and today is one of those times. And, you know, I also believe that people come into your life either for a reason or a season. And I know Dickie Smothers came into my life for a reason. He is an inspiration to me. Uh, he is someone who has spoken truth to power, uh, who has used his creative genius alongside his brother who's had an amazing relationship with his brother and a partnership for all of us who want to learn how to partner with somebody and get along uh, for years and years and years on the road, no less with creative egos involved. There's so much to learn from this man. I am honored to have gotten to know him through the years and he joins us today. Dickie Smothers is in the house. Thank you, thank hey, you thank thank very much. I think this is a sign language of thank you. I love you. Wow. And, and so, they, uh, you, came, you came into my life on one of my wonderful seminal moments of striving and failing and learning to be better for that. And You uh, did an incredible job. I don't think there's any failure to it, but we'll leave it at that. Uh, you're a harsh critic of self. So let's, let's go back. I want to go way back. Like, <laughs> this is not the most happy moment of the way back. Like, your childhood, dad... Dad's situation was kind of an interesting one in terms of the trauma. Can we can we start right in the trauma and get through some drama and get to the good? You can, but I remember the dad thing, like the trauma of childbirth. I know I was there. <laughs> I just thought of that. The uh, you, whatever you are in, it is the normal. And uh, we were in a very difficult time. You know, it's hard to say any any war time. Uh, is gentle and gentlemanly. I guess it was in the old days, you know, when they stood up with red jackets and got in lines and did all this stuff. It was awful. It was awful and unknown. And unknown what when well, I was your born. dad though, was a prisoner of war. Uh, that's right. And that and, adds an added level of awful, right? Yeah, that's why I was, I, I'll do the quicker. Yeah, we, Tom was born early 37. I was born late 38. We traveled with dad, a West Pointer. You traveled with military officers where, where possible. This, it was a good station in the Philippines, but not at that time in history. May of 40, uh, May of 41, they, they evacuated all the military dependents uh, from uh, Army, Navy people, personnel, whoever was there. And so six months prior to Pearl, Pearl, uh, Pearl, Pearl Harbor, boy, my mom was put on a, on a ship. Uh, she was close to six months pregnant with my little sister. And she had two terrible twos, roughly kids running around and not knowing if she'd ever see her husband or we would ever see our father again. And we did not. And so we settled in Southern California and that was a blessing. You know, it's like you do, you do, you do what you do where you land in pandemic, terrible disasters, whatever misfortune puts you there. We should have been in North Carolina, Winston-Salem, where dad was born and raised, but we weren't. And we were there. And because the loss of father and my mom's struggle uh, with sobriety and raising kids, uh, we were we were tighter siblings, tighter. Uh, the 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 big thing. Mom always liked you best. Was Tommy loved to yell at me, and that came out by accident one time. It was not an issue. We loved our mother, but uh, she struggled, and and I took out I took after my mom, and and Tom took after dad, and uh, I I went through the same process my mother did, and but I was very successful. In it, yeah, we're going to talk about yeah. 25, 26 years of sobriety yeah. here pretty yeah. soon. Yeah. Um, but before we get there, I mean, I just think that you know, lots of people 
as a result of trauma, they just kind of go inward and there is no creativity, no productivity. Yeah. Fortunate yeah. for you two to be brothers yeah. who found something. Now, my take on it is the Kingston Trio paved a path for you. Uh, but oh, somehow did. you two figured this cool, weird folk comedy thing. Yeah, yeah the, the, the rest of the story you know, something happens there. Like, which is your big break? Every single one. With, if one of them was missing, that link wouldn't have been there. And uh, the the trauma of, uh, of my mother, Tommy and I wrote, growing up in Southern California, it was not the backwaters. It was not a, a wonderful little place like uh, Des Moines, Iowa. You did That wasn't a stepping stone to show business out there. But LA, Hollywood, the uh, cutting edge California, Growing up, we graduated from high school in the mid '50s. Uh, Kingston Trio got big in the uh, in the late late '50s with uh, MTA and all those songs and folk. All of a sudden, instead of doo wops and and all these uh, four freshmen and these nice songs, all of a sudden there's story songs of America, soldier, you know, like heroes and all that stuff. So if we had done our our regular progression, sang in school. Uh, put out a, a group uh, to sing in local little fun things. There was no upside. There's nowhere to go with that. But comedy is a treasure. In in the late '50s, there weren't any comedy stores. There weren't any comedy clubs. There were there, there were little nightclubs. Then all of a sudden, there were coffee coffee houses and coffee shops and coffee little things with folk, folkies. And we got notorious right away for disrespecting and weren't ethnic. We were making fun of that history mm -hmm. but that was our style we're dyslectic we can't remember stuff and tommy had a genius of being able to be right out of the box funny doing things funny was it his dyslexia and his trouble with words and or his thought process very bright very very rich and and, and as a human being he always was but right out of the box he didn't have to learn to be funny uh, steve martin was w one of our writers he worked and struggled and he, he he's brought that out you, generally to say if you want to be a comedian you have to learn to bomb and be terrible for a long time but tommy right out of the box just he, he nailed people and got the funny lines and i was the perfect catalyst you know what is a super glue you need this the first bottle you, you then you mix it with the second bottle yeah and you got something different it, that's a good team like uh, G george burns and gracie allen he went through so many partners uh, seals, dogs, whatever, and he found Gracie. She was made for him. They were perfect. And you know, and I, the straight I man perfect together. The the credit. I give you lots of credit for that, though you don't take much. You almost always give your older brother, older by two years, this sort of chops for leading you in the genius of comedy. But your timing yeah. together was amazing, and that that sort of correct my brother thing. Yeah. Was interesting, yeah, but, but but Joseph, a a comedian can have a partner like George Carlin was Burns and Carlin. He was obviously a, a brilliant talent, but he got a lot of fundamental stuff of, of performing. Then he dumped any partner, and he was there. Now, if I had done the same process, worked with my brother, dumped him, I'd have been an announcer. <laughs> okay, I, I, maybe not even a good game show host. I don't know. I could have done that, maybe. But All right. You see, the genius was Tommy. Set up, Set up was, a clip for me. 
I uh, I pulled a clip. I only did three minutes of it. I I never know on Facebook Live if they're going to say I'm stealing intellectual property, even if it's yours. No, you're good. You're even good. if I give you permission. Million years old. Um, so it is. Uh, it is a classic time in comedy. Uh, you are going to be on a show where a guy stayed 39 years of age his entire life. Uh, can yeah. you tell me a little bit about the the ramp up there? How long had you been? successful this is long before your own variety show long before your sitcom and then the variety show right keeping in mind i did not cram for this interview yeah <laughs> <That's> <laughs> i don't good. have the notes i don't have any crib notes but that was prior it was black and white and prior to our first uh tv show which is a sitcom in 65 so this was a uh, jack benny and it was probably in 63 64 ish Okay, and uh, we we got to be on his show, and uh, he was one of the most delightful guys. I don't know which one it was, which performance. So uh, we'll just watch. All right, it. well here we go. Let's see what you think of this one. Let's uh, see if this is actually you, and if you remember any of it. We'll be silent as we hear the genius of the Smothers Brothers. And now, ladies and gentlemen, getting on with the show, I'd like to bring on my guests, two very fine entertainers, the Smothers Brothers. Yes, but I but I said no because I didn't want to. Wait a minute, you're a folk singer. Have, have you read the folk singer's guidebook? Yeah, but I didn't want to. And uh, what does the guidebook say? It says all folk singers are obligated to do what? You're you're obligated to take it <laughs> without without hesitation, without thinking. Yeah, but like a reflex, Tommy. Take it, Tom. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, I say take it. Hop to it. Men of yesteryear went out in the wilderness with vision in their eyes and big nine pound hammers in their hands. Went out in the wilderness to build the great spider web of steel rails, the transcontinental railroad to span our country as these men went out in the wilderness and toiled and inched their way across the vast bosom of America. That's <laughs> <laughs> a little sex in the show. <laughs> There was dangers in this job as they built the railroads up the mountains and down the mountains and in, across uh, the deserts and over, over raging rivers and they had to span crevices, deep crevices in the ground and in the, and in the bottom of the crevices there was pumas. <laughs> These pumas with claws and foam coming out of these pumas' mouth and the, and the railmen are going, Woo! They all pick us down! I'm not gonna kill anybody! 
because we don't have pumas. There's no pumas in America. Well, maybe some came over to visit. They don't visit. Now, if you want to keep your story truthful, you get rid of the pumas right now. I'm not going down that crowd. All right, that is amazing. I mean, do you remember? Can you? Remember being in that space at all? Does it? Yes, I yes I can. And Tommy and I were we could we can't write comedy. We performed at improv, sort of like Nicholson May. Uh, Second City was the great renaissance of comedy. It was starting in Chicago and around at that time. So that piece we did for maybe thirty years, and it was evolving and shaping, and new things would come and come and ebb and flow. And man, he had pumas, and then he got rid of the. He he says, "Well, they sure look like pumas." What for a while? Then pretty soon, yeah, but they were disguised as foaming rocks. There's these <laughs> rocks down there. He would, he would, he never lost focus on getting those pumas in. And that's the way we had to give and take. Of course, there were pumas in America. So I like to, to you know, I correct my brother incorrectly. It's the point of, I, I would just naturally know to put him in a position that gave him great opportunity to go in this direction, he would constantly surprise me. And because we were loose and, and fluid, we could never just sort of cruise through a show and say, think it's, uh, we're, we're, we know this so much, so well, it's your turn, my turn, and lose the, the focus and the energy. We had to listen all the time because there, it, would, it would have just enough that we could lose the nuance. And the audience would tell us what's funny. And that's, that's, that's how it worked in... Uh, and we, it slowly, when we started, all we were doing was fo featuring Tommy's, um, his ability to do funny things. I see I come, a real funny person doesn't need the joke. We don't do jokes. Uh, it's They get the laughs between the laughs, between the laughs, you know, like. Yeah, uh, I mean, so many of those looks, yeah. the nonverbals, the yeah, timing. Yeah, you can't write it. Pauses. can't write that. Things that were, you know, really funny were in the pauses, right? Uh, uh, in the in the crevices. Um, so let's. <laughs> let's freaks. Now I got my own crevices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all do. Let Let me pause for a second in our own thinking about this because I'd like to summarize a couple of things so far. Adversity did not provoke disaster for you. It was a catalyst. Lots of events have to happen in a chain in order to be successful. All none of if one of those had been missing, you would not have been the Smothers Brothers that were so successful for so long. So those are yeah. great teachable lessons. I think yeah. being present and being spontaneous and not having everything contrived and prepackaged, being in the moment. Uh, I think there's so many so many lessons to that. Let me let me step toward kind of moving past some of the, your your comedy bits like you were doing there. You got in a uh, a sitcom that didn't really play to your strengths. I don't think that kind of a single camera shot. Uh, it just didn't have the musical elements. It didn't run very long though. It held its own, I think. Um, yeah. But then somehow because of Gunsmoke, you uh, got a chance to take on the sheriff. Uh, no, no, you mean Bonanza. Bonanza, Bonanza, yeah, Bonanza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the sitcom was a great, uh, a great example of how you learn from not getting a successful, like uh, the suit of clothes didn't fit, uh, fit us. Uh, Bill Maher's original show on television was awful. They were all falling over each other. He had to find the format. So we, 
we knew we wanted an audience. We wanted music. We wanted to do our own timing, which a single camera sh show doesn't do. That's shooting a movie. And we wanted to be relevant. And we were none of those things in that show. So we were, our career was really zooming up at that time. And CBS was in deep trouble on uh, nine o'clock Sunday night, the most watched hour of the week. Appointment television, you didn't record anything. You weren't there, you missed it. So they were opposite Bonanza, which you brought up. And it was, it was bulletproof. And it was, CBS was bleeding money the highest advertising dollar was nine o'clock. You know, they had the, they had a various scale, and what and Gary Moore was in that spot. And Gary Moore had a great history in television. Created the show for Carol Burnett. He had a variety show, game shows. He was very kind to us, and his show that year was the last rated show. And they wanted something quick in the middle of the season. And that's a variety show, right? Because you can't do well, it. Yeah, they wanted something quick and dirty. It was inexpensive versus yeah, a, a film show. There's a lot of rap, ramping up to that. So here we are with a big high TVQ. They tested us. And now they test us. They say, who? <laughs> Go to old age home for that. But anyway, we've tested really strong. We were, we were great performers. And they were thinking, and William Morris Agency, Abe Lassvogel was the, the president that went to CBS and said, all of your team is old. Your variety shows are, are hosted by people like Jack Benny, uh, 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 Danny Kaye, Red Skelton. They, they were, it's time for some young blood. And it, it happened, and we happened to be available. And the thing that made it the, sh the show perfect for us, it was the mid-60s was happening without our participation. We didn't help create it. It was happening. We had a great social conscience. We wanted young writers to be relevant. And we, we, we struck a real hard deal because CBS thought we'd be in and out in 13 weeks, which is what they would give you for half a season. And in the meantime, they could uh, create something that uh, would be uh, have a chance to be successful. And so we got, we, we got away with, as we understood, we got creative control. And things we didn't think the 60s was going to lay out like that. But here we were, we were the, I think the only persons, only act they could have put on that had that, that political, social uh, morale and, and would, would, wasn't afraid to do things that hadn't been done before in that time frame. Well, let's uh, talk about your courage, right? Because uh, Lyndon Bing Johnson wasn't right. impressed, though his daughter yes, was. He was. <laughs> yeah, she he was like impressed. <laughs> Even though I think there was a line somewhere that yeah. they were less than attractive. Uh, but anyway, you, you, yeah. most of it was around kind of just Phil Oaks type songs, kind of things that challenged the Vietnam War and the notion that the people on the front line might be having a very different experience than the leaders yeah. who were sending them into yeah. the war. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you were hearing from Johnson to the heads of CBS and then yeah. what they were asking of you and your brother? Yeah. yeah, those guys all hang out together. You know, they still do, except nobody wants to hang out with the current president. Um, he, Lyndon Johnson, uh, at one point, he knew his daughters liked the show and he sat with uh, Paley, the the, the CEO or the president, the creator of CBS, basically, uh, William Paley, and, and it asked him, could he talk to the boys and have them tone down their, their criticism on the war? Because 
he's trying to manage a war here and they're not helping. <laughs> Did you and, know you were uh, supposed to help him manage the war? I didn't know if you had. No, your... we didn't know that till later. And so uh, Tommy, Tommy didn't have any, Tommy had so naive in, in the, in the, in the bureaucracy of the broadcasting, you, you start as a page and a cue card holder all the way up to the top guy. And you don't jump like in the army. You, you don't go to the Colonel, you go to your Sergeant, your Corporal. Tommy went, flew to New York and got right into Paley's office and started talking to him. And when he came back to Hollywood, uh, the, 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 Vice President in charge of uh, or President in charge of the variety shows. He says, "You really got in his office? What it looked like?" I'm exaggerating <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, he says, "I just came in there and talked to him." But sometimes anyway, it's good not to know you you can't, right? Like yeah, it's sometimes good. Yeah. If, yeah, if you don't know you can't do it, you could do it. And we yeah. didn't know we were brave. We didn't know any of that stuff because it the story was unfolding as as the as the as the, uh, the decade progressed, and we would book unusual acts. Uh, uh, we had uh, uh, we get credit for putting on a, a lot of uh, black musical acts from Moms Mabley to the uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, those kinds of people and great acts. We we featured rock and roll. If they had talent and they could do it live, we wanted them on our show. And that was different. At the same time, uh, as you saw Jack Benny doing the Jack Benny show, Betty Davis and uh, from our, Betty Davis to Kate Smith, my gosh, were on our show. The icons that our generation grew up on the radio and then early. So let, me, let me then take you, I'm going to fast forward through some of that. Uh, you wanted Pete Seeger on to sing Big Muddy, I think. You got they that? said no. You actually, I think they clipped him out or something. And then you also, they clipped out other things of yours. You did a. You want to, you want to hear a little more on that story? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Pete Seeger was a great American. He was part of the blackballing of uh, uh, the uh, uh, McCarthy era. You know, it's, and uh, he didn't he was one of the greatest folk singers and he was with the weavers they had good night irene on top of those smoke elder songs anyway we, he wrote a song waist deep in the bed big muddy uh and it was uh, uh he got his his inspiration from a troop of soldiers that were well he he put it in the frame of a troop of soldiers following an ignorant leader and you could say who it is the the leader of the of our country and the and the river was this deep getting in over our head in vietnam and he said don't worry i know the way follow me we'll be safe basically we'll be safe and they were before they knew it they were waist deep in the big muddy and he kept going lower and then uh, they all they drowned so uh tommy always said that to the people if it's a decent song you could do what you want pete said i like to do that song it was relevant for the day, uh, doves and hawks, pro and con the war. And so Tom said, we'll do it. We'll have a backup. And they, they, they did the backup song. And we were, we were devastated, and Pete was not happy about that. Well, I, I, apropos to, to, to the president of CBS and, and, uh, and uh, uh, the president and that stuff, uh, they came to Tom and said, okay, Tom kept saying, I want Pete Seeger to sing Big Money. He says, okay, if you back off on the war thing, it's like trading, quid pro quo, you do this for us, we'll do that for you. And like a teenager who will say, promise anything to dad to get that car on Saturday night and then forget that he made the promise. <laughs> you That's know your I mean? mother. 
Yeah. <laughs> Pete Seeger got on and got to do it. Well, that's a very proud moment of ours to have that song. And the song, by the way, it's it, our stuff was so polite and, and, and lightly sprinkled within the show that it was unusual and, and, and unheard of for the day. But today, it's just like saying Lenny Bruce, who was just really off the charts back then, would just be one of the many. It's You can't fire everybody today. You can't get everybody out. But there was this one guy, we we're like a groundhog back there, you know, coming up, looking out of our hole saying, it look, doesn't look, looks fine. Whoops, <laughs> <laughs> off with your head. And so, you, know so what? you did that, then there was, uh, there was some rioting footage uh, to the music of, I'm forgetting his name now. I Larry love Belafonte. Larry Belafonte. Uh, and that got recast, and they ended up doing Harry, but they did like they a took out the, they took out, they took, No, they took out the whole medley. It was about, it was a long medley, and it was 1968, and the Democratic Convention in Chicago was a riot. It's the first time the, the police department, I, I went through a, a police school in Sarasota, citizens, they give you a six weeks course. So I got the, the, you know, the in and outs, we, we, we got thumbnail things of police, just thumbnails. And it's really not a fair thing to do a thumbnail. It's like tweeting the police and knowing what they're about. But anyway, they were afraid. They had never had demonstrators who were middle class, were students. They were all the downtrodden, the economic, you know, the thing you could really shake your head, you know. But it was it was different. And, and it got way out of hand in Chicago. And so when Harry did the song, which are fun, clips of Mama, look up, boo boo day, shut your mouth, go away. You know, those kind of songs. It's, you just, you got to smile and dance when you hear Belafonte doing those things, and they would shoot in inside things. Remember the conventions with the balloons and the signs, and all looking like total idiots. Has nothing to do with saving our country. But then, inner space was the the brutality on the street, and so they, this is the games they played. Uh, they took it out, and they had see we we thought we had creative control, and in reality, uh, constitutionally only the network, the owner of the show. The owner of the network has that. So they took it out and we, we weren't going to take it out. We said, this is a, this is a good show. We stand by it. You do what you want with it. And they, they put in a big, long Nixon political commercial for president, like rubbing our face in it a little bit, you know. So let's jump past that because you had that. You had, you know, pre-approvals of your material that you had to deliver in advance. They yeah. alleged that you didn't, you know, that, that Tommy didn't deliver something that needed to be delivered, that you were in breach. They cancel you, you take them to court, you win, right? But that's yeah, uh, yeah. three or four years later and the show's long gone. Yeah, and we really, we think we were fired. They canceled the show then fired. We already had uh, agreed on an, another show. We owned the time slot uh, 12 months of the year. That was part of our contract. We created the uh, Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. And we had another one, and we, we had a great production team. And this is what Tommy was risking. Uh, and from one side, you could say, you're risking the jobs of all these writers. And no, even, even a writer that had not done anything on our show, but was a writer, boy, they snapped up. Everybody snapped up our, the, the writers, the, the creative people on the show. They, they all did well. But uh, uh, when we risk, what we were risking was uh, not having the, uh, the, uh, the soapbox, the power seat. 
Now, Dave Gard of the Kingston Trio talked to Tommy. He quit the Kingston Trio at their peak, and he was the leader, the tall banjo yeah. player. And he was going to start another group and get creative because he was tired of doing the same stuff. And that never happened. And he lost his power. He lost his people. He had he had no juice anymore. They said, yeah. you're going to lose your juice, you guys. You got something. You know what? And had we followed that, I think we had a, would have had a great production career. I don't think we would have done what we did. And we, we, we don't regret a thing we did. We, so we got fired. How much That's authenticity, how much, though, isn't it? I mean, it's in the end, you can look back without regret for who no. you were and how you showed up. Hey, Joseph, you know how it is that you walk down the street and the people of a certain age, they come up and, you know, you know, people, when you remember a good memory, your brain is there. It's not remembering, it's present. And the joy that they have of coming up for no reason at all, they said, I want to thank you. For something we did 50 some odd years ago yeah well, you're I, a realtor you know? when I'm with you i remember having a meal near my house where the waitress is probably half of my age which is a couple of years less than yours um and she was like my mom loves you like she knew yeah. who you were a generation removed and and the, the lore i think of the heroism of the truth of your story is something we're all looking for right like we want to believe that if we were in the same place, that we would stick to our morals and we wouldn't let ourselves be corrupted by the fame celebrity so much so that we wouldn't yeah. stand our guns. I know, I know, isn't it funny? It's a, God, I, I believe in a higher power because I am in a 12-step group and and we, have, we think acceptance. Nothing happens for no reason at all, things happen. And if you want to change the whole world or have it just your way, like a controlling person, you're going to end up defeated. But if you accept and grow off of that, the, the situations created the direction of the show. We were, I was surprised as anybody that these things happened on the world stage. Boy, Tommy wanted to do, uh, uh, for instance, uh, the, uh, the, the vice president in charge of, of public affairs, you know, local stations would have somebody somber would come out and give a, a point of view on something uh, in your community. Well, they laughed at Tommy. So we had a good friend named Pat Paulson. He was perfect to come out. And then we eventually ran him for president in 1968, 68, and he took second in New Hampshire primary, a distant, distant second. But <laughs> it was the, it, and we weren't the first to run a celebrity. I, I think Paulson, I might add, and yeah. I would have voted for him. He oh, God. As fluid as anyone. So they, things, opportunities, avail themselves in it. But if you come in and as in life, I feel if you're locked in to a certain way of doing things, you miss the opportunities of the, the nuance of the time. You, and uh, the, the time that you had, I mean, the Paulsons and then, you know, you, you mentioned Steve Martin earlier, a writer of yours for your yeah, show. Rob, Rob Reiner. These Rob. people were, uh, Rob Reiner was from writing royalty. Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, the Sid Caesar show. Brilliant, brilliant. And and he, he it was way before he did Meet Meathead and those things, you know, his, yes. his, his roles. But they grow. And you you know, and the great variety shows in the history of television, the writers, if you follow the writers from the from the, the, the Milton Burrow, the Sid Caesar, to you name it, all the way through, you find great comedic writers that went on and it superseded the stars of the show. We we really presented. We had much fun. We did our little Tommy Dickey thing, 
and we had the moral compass there with Mason Williams and this some, and we could do some stuff. But we loved presenting talent. And you also was, though then did what is almost unheard of, right? Fifty years of partnership with your brother. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about it from the dynamics of brother to brother, the dynamics of two creative artists, the dynamics of, oh my God, him again, um, or what he's stealing my line, or he's, the spotlight's shining too much on the wrong side of the stage. Talk to me about the negotiation of a career that long uh, with all of the stresses and, you know, there weren't always successful relationships. There was your alcohol issues. There were all kinds of things going on. But mm -hmm. how did you maintain a brotherly success story for that long? There was there was some really stressful times like any marriage. And it was a marriage. Uh, we were a couple. Tom, Tom would do it in the show sometimes. I don't get the laugh with it, but he said, we're like an old married couple. Mm -hmm. A lot of fighting and no sex. <laughs> and, you got and, the laugh and, today. Yeah. And we it. like it that way, I might add. We like it that way. Uh, Tommy was under stress all the time. PTSD. Uh, you don't have to be in battle, battle of life, battle of career, battle of, of pressures. And, and you keep enduring and you do it and you do it and it wears you down. And Tommy got very short at times. And uh, I, th I, I, th I thought he uh, had a drinking problem at some time. And but you, you can't call it. Uh, you, I, I don't know how he handled what he did, uh, but he'd get real short with me sometimes. And other times, just cover my ass really good. He said, hey, you're doing that thing with Burt Reynolds. He's, don't look at him. Don't look at him in this skit. He's, he's, he's jiving. He's driving around. He's getting the attention. You know, don't pay attention to Just throw your lines away. Or, or, or Florence Henderson, we're singing a, a song, the desert song, Nelson Eddy, Jeanette McDonald. My desert is calling, you know. And she would maneuver around so she had the best camera angle to the television camera. I said, Tommy, I don't care. He says, do it. He he really, he, he covered me. And, I'm giving uh, you the best camera angle in live stream right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but Tommy had, we... we your your it, thunder he was here. The, All right, I'm coming back. All right. Uh, Tommy. Oh, now I froze you up on that camera angle. Oh, no, well, we're all okay. frozen. Hold I on. I can't talk. Uh, let's see I'm, if we can't recover. Oh, um, my camera's, my, my screen's moving. Maybe we are back there. Okay, now let me add you to the stream. I think it was you, actually. It's my hand. Something it's happened hand. with Dickie's... Uh, live stream i think we, we may have overexcited him there uh so dicky yeah. i'm going to come back on to cam with me and uh hopefully uh you will join us back in the stream uh that's okay so there we go at least i'm back in the stream i'm not sure what yeah. what happened uh to, to dicky in that particular uh moment let me add you to the stream
Okay, I am back with you. I don't know what happened to my stream, but okay. I see we're getting short on time here. Uh, basically, we 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 went to couples counseling. You've heard of Est, and uh, yeah. and I, we didn't go to Est. We went to uh, Landmark. I did some right. Landmark stuff. The forum uh, and all that that followed. Yeah, Est. yeah, yeah. The, you know, it gets stuff. But anyway, and they do couples counseling. So I, while I was doing it, says you can you have same sex. Uh, couples that's just business partner couples yeah 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 so uh we got a guy to come up to tommy's uh, vineyard in sonoma and i thought since i've been through three or four seminars that i just sit back and watch tommy struggle and <laughs> and learn <laughs> the guy was after my ass the whole time and i, said, Wait a and I didn't i didn't like that guy <laughs> but anyway but yeah, you know but what? Anyway, you put in your life—that's the reinvention, right? I mean, it's the constantly yeah. growing, looking inside, realizing that some of the things this guy was saying may have been true. Yeah, uh, yeah. But guess what? We learned, which we should all should have been that hard of a lesson, that when we criticize each other, it was positive. We wanted the act to be better, and Tommy could sense at some timing stuff that I was doing that he thought I could improve it. And I, and I, I gave him lots of suggestions. And part of our timing was me whispering in his ear when he didn't know what to say. Yeah. And my mind would click, 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 click to a different perspective or point of view than his would click. And sometimes that timing, they said, you got great timing. No, we don't. I didn't hear what Dickie said. I had to say what? And I did it. So, so those things work together and we, you know, never, never take credit. But Tommy, we, we realized after that, that's a few days, we, we got another 10 years out of the act and we were. Well, the, the key there is that feedback is a gift, as hard as it is to hear. Uh, and if, if the intention behind giving the feedback is constructive, it's a gift. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you've got to want that gift. All right, so let's talk about wanting the gift of sobriety. Uh, you wanted that gift somewhere. Took you a while, yeah, didn't I, it? I didn't know. I, I just thought I was an enthusiastic drinker. I didn't know I was a drunk. And I wasn't all the time. And there's varying degrees. There are varying degrees of uh, some people uh, drink a lot and don't know when to stop, but they eat a lot, don't know when to stop. They don't know when to stop buying clothes, don't know when to stop collecting things or whatever. And uh, when I found that I was luckier than smart, and when I found the, the, uh, the rooms of AA, it took me uh, quite a few years to get the magic of it and what it can give. Uh, I was in a pink cloud. I, a pink cloud is I went to rehab. I thought it was a rest home for celebrities. <laughs> yeah, so there were some. And uh, and once I found out I was an alcoholic, it was, the, oh, that's my problem. The dicky that I am now has always been there. But if you start overdoing it with a, with drugs and and whatever you, you 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 put corrosion all over that shiny part of yourself, and so you got, I didn't know. Got sober twenty five years a day at a time. Twenty six years coming up, right? Yeah, I, yeah I'm twenty six years, and now it's I know that I'm a work in progress. I know that I'm just one of a of many. It's not all about me. I love to share. I love to it. it if you're if you're an elite uh, anything musician athlete performer after a while sometimes it's very easy to say it's them and it's us and it's not them and us with me anymore it's just 
us. And I love, I love taking an Uber when I can. And I found the most amazing people interacting with me one-on-one. -on -one, and, I, and I love to validate people's existence because they are so important. I love ordinary. Uh, Mandela had a poem written about him after he died from a very dear friend, uh, a book. It was called Mandela, an Ordinary Man. Hmm. At first you say, that's ridiculous. No, ordinary people are the ones that jump into the, the frozen river to save people from a plane wreck. They stop and they help. Ordinary people make the world go because they're ordinary. They're not sick and, and selfish and they're, they're available. Hmm. And to be available human being in today's and, and you know, one of the, the, the uh, most important things in AA is and it should be done in politics. Say what you mean, but don't say it mean. Ooh, ooh. You know, ooh. anybody says so anything me mean. About, what was the driver you think to drinking? I mean, because clearly now with this clarity of vision and 25 years of sobriety and a constant focus on being kind and being approachable and, and being ordinary in extraordinary ways, uh, what do you think separated you from that person and let alcohol be the, the solution for a while. I never would have guessed it, but I had never, I didn't know there was an inside of me. I thought deep thinking was what novelists wrote in books to fill up the pages, to justify, to motivate, to, you know, and I would cry when I read Shogun, I went through three or four bottles of sake. It was a great book, you know, but I found a way inside myself. And I, I love myself now. I love, I love that our higher power gives us this gift of introspection, of acceptance, of, of, of copying the responsibility for my actions. And then when you see them saying, and they're not good actions, you make amends. Your apology and amends, two different things. Uh, you know, when you do a quick fix like uh, S, you go out and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That doesn't work. You have a lot of steps is finding a higher power, saying you're not it. Doing a rigorous inventory, moral inventory of your rights and your defects of things, writing them down, sharing it with another living person and the God of your choosing or understanding. And then if you don't damage anybody, and it's important, make an apology for you, not for them. They don't have to forgive you. You, you could do unforgivable things. And we all know the only pe person or the only thing that forgives you is your God. You know, Nikki Smothers, you, you know, I was, I told, I warned you, the only thing I warned you about is that I might do a rapid fire final minute. I'm not doing that. Okay. I think we got to just end with the magic of this moment that, Oh, thank you. You know, with, I maybe, maybe I'll tag it on just this much. You're 82 soon, right? You'll be 82 yeah. in a I'm couple in of my months. 82nd year. Yeah. There you go. Um, you know, there's something so vital, so vibrant, so real about you today uh, you are a charming mature uh, male yeah. and, and i'm not hitting on you um I'm just, <laughs> thank you very much I'm already. And, and <laughs> where are the elders where is the wisdom how come we don't take more time in these kind of conversations you and me kind of conversations what's wrong why i want you to keep you feeding my sense of what's important 
What's the question? I'm not clear. I, I don't have the clarity of you're saying people don't take time to do that. Enough? Yeah, I, I mean, is I want you bottled up and shared all over the uh -huh. place. You know, I mean, what? Where is? I know you guys did a 50th anniversary of your show cancellation tour. Yeah, yeah but, but that's showbiz. That's you know, that's showbiz. When I saw uh, uh, the the uh, Mr. Rogers movie, yeah, uh, he. <laughs> was so gentle and strong he was spring steel he got a he got an agenda to give this man some insight on being a better person and he didn't say it it just surreptitiously covertly snuck and bit him on the bottom and he he learned a lesson through the strength of a gentle person there's so much can be done for being gentle, but you, you can't teach a 12 step in, in, in uh, schools or in seminars or anything else. You have to hurt. You have to have a life that is totally not working for you and admit it and then say, right. what can I do about having a meaningful life? Can I get my family back? Can I, can I get my friends back? You have to really want it because we, mm. we don't advertise a 12 step program at all. You come to us, we'll help you. But if you, it's not you can't sell it uh, if you got what we want uh, i don't know what to say yeah I, and I think your depth is definitely in the 12-step recovery journey i think your depth is beneath that too like the journey helped you access the the part of you that you love right uh yeah. that part of you that so. you love is what is lovable to a lot of us i mean i i treasure what you've gone through in your journey i treasure your relationship with your brother i treasure your comedy uh, all of that. Um, but I Joseph, here's the thing. Let me throw something back at you. Joseph, you've probably had a very, very interesting life, probably didn't imagine where you'd be here today. And you didn't think of this. God didn't let me live this long just to live this long. Yeah. Amen and hallelujah, brother. We're going to do this again sometime. I'd love Maybe to. Maybe when you turn 164. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna shoot golf. I'm gonna shoot my age in golf, or uh, uh, you know what? I I take challenges today that I can't really master because that's the joy of progressing in life. Ballroom dancing, that helping others. Uh, I God, there's just so much to do out there that uh, I could uh, wish. No, I don't wish I could live for if if here's the thing if we could live expend our life to 200 years what age what point of physicality would we be for that 200 would we just be old for another 150 years or would be the prime of life for another 150 years what part of life the length is irrelevant it's yeah no and i think Wayne dyer once said how old would you be if you didn't know how old you are um, and I think in many ways you can be very young at 81 or you can be very old at eight. Uh, and I think the key is to try to be as present in that moment with the fullness of spirit that you have. And thank you for being a gift to me. We're going to wrap it at that. Thanks for all of you who joined in, people who shared your comments. 
throughout. So we've got amens, we got powerful wows, we got great points in the feedback. This stream will be out there. If you liked what you saw today, please share this link. Unlike uh, live television of the old days where they didn't record it for replay, yeah. where this is available for replay, it was live. It's kind of like the old days, Dickie, except uh, it is going to be available to people either on YouTube or Facebook or on LinkedIn. This is an amazing man. I have nothing... I have nowhere to send you. It's not like you have to go and buy his CDs or his tapes or, you know, uh, fix a dent. None of that. It's uh, it's just Dickie Smothers giving to you his gifts today. So thank you. I will uh, catch you all next week. Next week, uh, great guests coming up. I, you know, I've got so many of them. Ellen Rohr is going to be with me. Uh, we, we've got just so many tremendous guests that I've, I'm blanking on them all now because I just saw uh, Dickie Smothers blow me a kiss, which was enough uh, to freak out any human being. Well, that was my, my your many fans that are tuning oh, okay. in. All right. all right. If they get a kiss, it's fine. Other than yeah. that, I'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. Give you a